0: Welcome to Partisan Gardens. We can't wait any longer for a tech breakthrough, climate apocalypse, the revolution, or a reform of the USDA loan system.
1: On Partisan Gardens, we know climate catastrophe is here. And it's our food system's dead end.
2: Here we see sustainable fine dining and ecological destruction, hunger and obesity, extreme wealth and immense poverty. We must be frank about reality to reckon with our options. We must choose sides. And become partisans of a new way to live and grow food.
1: This alternative path is already under construction.
0: Through the experiments and struggles of food service and agricultural workers, we are figuring out how to create food systems that will nourish
1: a livable world for us all. Partisan Gardens will feature stories from kitchen staff, new small farmers, undocumented slaughterhouse organizers, agroecology researchers, black farming cooperatives, urban gardeners, indigenous land stewards permaculturists, and countless others exploring this field of experimentation. Let those of us who refuse to wait proceed together. The
3: current
2: food system has failed,
0: and we are on the side of nourishment and care. For this episode, we speak with a group of grassroots labor organizers formerly employed at No Evil Foods, a socialist-themed vegan foods company. They describe their efforts to organize a union at the company's manufacturing plant, and No Evil's subsequent efforts to bust the union, leverage the COVID crisis, and eventually outsource their work in order to close the Asheville factory. We include a response from No Evil as well. This experience highlights the contradictions created by progressive, market-based efforts to reform the food system. It also reveals the advantages employers have secured for themselves in the 21st century economy, in which labor needs can be rapidly outsourced and troublesome workforces rapidly laid off. Employers can further benefit from management through crisis, in which the permanent crisis we all now live within, and COVID-19 is only the most recent and severe expression of this crisis, can be taken advantage of to justify permanent restructuring and precarity. This unfavorable balance of power inside the factory has pushed many away from workplace organizing and towards strategies based on attacking economic circulation, such as the mass farmers' blockades in India. In spite of these disadvantages, though, workers are also necessarily experimenting with new forms of workplace organizing, which have borne increasing fruit over the past few years, and the lessons of the No Evil Foods unionization campaign will definitely be of use to future struggles.
2: I'm John. I started at No Evil back in uh, November of 2019, and I was let go in uh, May on May Day for union activities and um, a petition for hazard pay.
4: I'm Megan. I was part of the organizing drive at No Evil Foods. I started there in uh, December of 2019.
3: My name is Josh Coit. I was a former production worker for No Evil Foods. I worked from September of 2019 till about April of 2020. and I was part of the organization effort there. Pretty much from the time I started working there, I signed a union card. So my first inclination of wanting to help organize and and unionize the place was from previous experience of working at places where they claim to have uh, progressive or liberal values and knowing that that kind of always ends up going on the wayside when it comes to profits and also the control for management. And the first week I worked there, I was actually approached by somebody who was like, hey, you want to sign a union card? We're trying to organize this place because the company, by the time I, I, I started working there, it had been around for about five years. And they went from being like a startup, working at like a shared space to uh, having a uh, large warehouse space of their own. And already things were starting to happen that were making it so that there were a lot of concerns from people who were working there.
2: Yeah. And when I started too, I noticed a lot of those safety concerns specifically. um, I noticed that like it was small things at first, like the dish room didn't have gloves that kept the chemicals out. The gloves basically had holes in them um, and the the chemicals would get onto your your fingers and it was corrosive. So it would burn into your skin. I feel like the procedures with a lot of, it just felt like a lot of the things were sort of up in the air a lot of the time too. I mean, just moving beyond safety concerns, it, it was, It's more like, okay, we're going to do, you know, like 14 cooks tonight. And then, you know, we hit that number and it's like, okay, now we're going to push that to 20. And everything was just so ambiguous and and there was nothing really solidified in terms of our say and what happened. And it it just felt very disorganized. And it it seemed like having a union there would definitely help alleviate a lot of those problems.
3: Yeah. From my end of things, like when I started the interview process, actually was when I started having a a feeling about the disorganization among how they communicated. So I was hired, it took them about a month to get my onboarding started. Part of the reason why I was like excited to start working there was the hours were Monday through Friday um, and there were four 10 hour shifts a week, which, you know, that's great. That gives me three whole days off. But then the, I want to say like the second day I started working there, they had said, okay, we're going to a five-day-a-week work schedule. And I think that's kind of what broke the first organization effort because what happened was a lot of people were, had worked there for five years and they would built their lives and schedules around it. Like one person, like their, their spouse had chemo and they were going to Greenville from Friday to Sunday. And they were like, well, hey, can't you make an exception for me? And the uh, owner of the business said, well, we knew this wasn't going to work out for everybody. So it, it was things like that, the culture was shifting very radically like a lot of people who'd been like long-timers there were suddenly not there. I think like the first month I worked there they ha- I think they lost like 40% of their staff just from all these like little changes they were making, but all those little changes were adding up to an environment where it was more about about what management wanted and how management wanted to dictate the terms in which people worked.
4: And as far as me wanting to unionize goes, like I was pretty involved from the time that I got there too. Um, John actually got hired before me. So I knew that there was talk of unionization and cards being passed around. So, I mean, I come from a union family. So I knew inherently that a union would be a good thing regardless of where I worked, just to give us more of a say in the workplace. So I was on board from day one.
3: For my end of things, it was kind of like one of the reasons why I I, I took this position was because it sold itself as a company that had ethical concerns at the center of like their agenda you know the the idea of you know helping facilitate the switch over to a vegan diet and making it mainstream, which to me is a very admirable and an awesome goal i it, It's something that like I you know strive to do myself um I know a lot of people like you know one of the big barriers of entry to you know people eating vegan is the accessibility issue it's a very difficult thing to get into. The the whole idea of like, you know, we're a progressive company, We, we pride ourselves on like, you know, kindness and all this, you know, other really great stuff is, you know, what drew me to them. And like the the imagery they had, like was like a lot of like, you know, like very left leaning, very like, you know, progressive sort of signifiers that like, you know, this is a different way to do business.
2: Yeah, I can kind of second that too. Uh that's uh, honestly their their outward marketing and and the face of the company is what drew me to it and a big part of the reason why I I moved from out of state to basically take that job and I I saw it as a career move and I thought that this would be something that I could really get into um you know as as somebody who is vegan and and I mean, everything about their marketing, they they, they market themselves as being progressive, leftists, like leftists. They talk about being revolutionary leaders. They talk about, you know, ushering in this, this new era of like vegan food and, and making it accessible to people. And it all sounded really good. And so that drew me in and it just was not what it appeared to be. At first, there were little cracks in, in the image, but uh, especially once the union stuff started, it became very obvious that this that I might as well be working for Walmart.
3: They, you know, really pushed hard and like trying to say like, you know, this is something that we're, we, if we do more business, you know, we start fulfilling these orders, then we, we can, you know, like talk about doing things like better pay and things like that. But the thing was, was, even though we were having a hard time meeting current production goals, because, you know, the system was not set up to take large amounts of orders. They were still just stacking in order after order and they were unable to fulfill them. So it was constantly like "Oh, well, you know, if you did better then we could, we could do these things. But the thing was, is they were never going to stop piling on orders. And that comes into things like safety and sanitation standards. And that was very, very stressful. <laughs> In the backdrop of all this going on, we were trying to get union cards filled out, which is a very challenging thing to do in the South. In order to get like a union vote to happen, you need to get at least fifty percent of the uh, cards signed, and then you you can move on to the next step there, which is like the the National Labor Board. They make an announcement, then you know an employer has the ability to like contest it or not. It was a long haul trying to get get people to sign the cards because there's a kind of a culture in the south of being suspicious of unions because a lot of places closed down shop in the 70s and 80s and shipped uh, jobs overseas and it was kind of a betrayal and then there's also a thing that i found out called the southern differential which is like companies will move down to the south because people are willing to work for less
2: yeah and mike uh, the owners of the company are from up north which is just a, a funny little coincidence Yeah, so
3: they they definitely have had experience with like people who were in unions and also a lot of the politics they claim to uh, believe in is part of that tradition of, you know,
2: representation and control by the workers of their own daily activities. Part of the, the problem that a company like this is going to have forever until they just change their marketing or go out of business is that they market to people who are going to be pro union. And, and that's kind of what's what's interesting about all this is that people will like you'll go on their social media, you'll go on Twitter or Instagram and you'll see somebody posting, oh, I just discovered this new brand and renewable foods. This is really cool. And then somebody will drop in the comments and say, oh, well, did you hear about all this union busting that's been going on? And they'll say, oh, my God, I had no idea. I'm never going to buy from them again, because the people that they market to do not want to a company that busts unions
3: it's a totally different thing from when like say they're just like you know we're, we're mike's vegan food company that's one thing to like be like hey yeah we, we make vegan food but it's another thing to tie your entire identity into the consumption of this product makes you a good liberal or a good leftist it's, an, it's not really a political statement it's just lifestyle marketing
4: also to touch on what you, what you kind of asked us before about why it's so difficult to organize in the South or even get union cards collected. I want to say the majority. I, I might want to double check that. The majority of the states in the South are right-to-work states, including North Carolina, where we were located or where we are located. And right-to-work essentially is you can be fired at any time for any reason. Trying to organize in a right-to-work state is so hard because the culture in that state, it's like that hustle culture where if you're not putting out as much as you possibly can and doing everything you can for the company that you work for, you know, you're not a
1: good worker.
2: Yeah, there, there, I think there's definitely a lot of pushback from people who seem to have this really odd loyalty to their employer no matter what happens. It, it might just be a uniquely Southern thing. I don't know. Comparatively speaking
3: to uh, several other places in the area, this was probably the first time a lot of the people working there had ever experienced a job that actually paid somewhat well. I mean, they were going on about how they were living wage certified, but really they were using a living wage scale that was uh, a bit dated. But like a lot of the people that worked there, you know, some people were driving like 30, 40 minutes a day to, to work there, even though like, you know, yes, it was a little bit better pay than what you normally get around here. You were at the whims of how they felt about anything like sure they had employee covered health insurance plan. I, I signed up for it, but I, I soon found out that I was better off not having it because it was more expensive than what I was already doing with, with like a co-op clinic. You know, I ended up spending like hundreds of dollars uh, unnecessarily because it was barely any sort of coverage,
4: You brought up the uh, living wage certification, and you mentioned that it was outdated, which is totally correct, because after all of this, you know, nonsense with No Evil Foods, you know, I really looked into what their living wage certification meant, and really the formula that they use to get certified is they look at housing prices in the area, and the idea is that you should be able to make enough money so that 30 percent or less of your income is going towards rent or house payments you know depending on your situation that on paper sounds good but what that doesn't include is like you know people with kids people with emergency you know emergency situations that happen so like while you might be making reasonably more above the minimum wage it doesn't really mean that it's a living wage or a thriving wage
2: they ended up lo- losing the uh, living wage certification because the organization that does the certifying determined that they weren't meeting the criteria anymore since they had basically retaliated against people for union-related activities.
3: It was smooth sailing once we started getting cards signed. We started getting more and more people listening to us. Um, but then when they, f- when they found out that we were organizing, um, it was like a few days before the uh, NLRB uh, contacted them, it was a complete 180 you know, it was like a, a total heel turn, if you will. They started, like, management started getting real testy with people. They started getting, like, suspicious. And they started creating a culture of suspicion.
4: Another thing, too, that's worth mentioning when uh, that I didn't think anything of at the time is when management really caught wind that there was a serious organizing drive and that an election would probably happen soon. They did this thing where we had two different shifts at the time. I think it's up to three now, but we had two different shifts at the time, a.m. and p.m., and what they would do before the shift started, whether you were working morning or night, is they would split people off into groups of maybe like six or seven people, five to seven people, and they would have you know shift leads in each of these groups, go around and ask, oh, okay, well, what can we do better here? You know, what They called them like grievance meetings where you could bring up any type of issue that you had working there which in theory is a really great idea. I actually thought it was a really good thing that they were trying to like do something. I mean, I, we knew that they were opposed to the union, but I was like, okay, you know, that maybe they just want to like hear us out and hear what the problems are. But, you know, later on I discovered, you know, if you're familiar with the, the union busters playbook, this is just a a playbook that's been used for decades now. That It's used to systematically like break down unions and bust unions up and to make sure that they they don't happen and this is actually this tactic here that I'm talking about is actually one of the first steps in breaking up a union because what it does is it allows management to kind of figure out who's got you know the biggest problems here who's the the loudest voice in terms of voicing concerns that maybe everybody has maybe only that person has but it's really just to weed out who you know, is a major part of the union. And you can kind of start putting people into those buckets of, you know, pro-union, anti-union, and on the fence so they know where to put their target at. It's really interesting how they did that because at the time I really had no idea that this was part of the entire process of breaking up a union. So if your workplace starts doing that, that's something to really watch out for.
3: Absolutely. Um, One of the things in these meetings too is if there's like a particular complaint against another person, especially if that person was not part of that meeting group, suddenly it would turn into an airing of grievances about this specific person to a manager or to a a shift lead. And more often than not, I noticed that when this would happen in groups that I was in, it would be like somebody who had been like, you know, interested in unionizing. You know, I definitely feel like that's, they started working on, you know, creating conflict between employees so that we wouldn't be able to build any solidarity. One of the things that they prided themselves on was like, hey, we hire ex-felons. And like, you know, I think that's an admirable thing to do But also, if you are a former felon, chances are you're still paying a lot of court costs off. So like they would say things like, oh, it'd be a shame if something happened where you weren't able to pay your court fees or the union itself might not let you work, continue working here because you're a felon or, you know, the union might require you guys to drug test. Things like that to um, concern these people who are already in a precarious enough economic situation with their record, it would play into those fears.
4: To back up just a little bit, even before a lot of the retaliatory stuff happened, because I want to say that the majority of all the retaliatory action was after the vote. It, you know, and if you you know you follow the story, you know we did lose, and that's when a lot of the retaliatory responses kind of came in. But to back it up a little bit, and we kind of just brushed over the captive audience meetings, where I, which I think were a massive part of breaking down the union drive and pitting everybody against each other and creating that climate of suspicion and fear and you know distrust. And I mean, I could talk about those for hours, but they would cram everybody into these tiny little rooms and essentially just tell us how bad unions are. And, you know, those of us who were outspoken in favor of unions, you know, we'd be raising our hands and trying to counter all of this misinformation that they were throwing at us and all of these like thinly veiled threats about, you know, oh, well, you know, we we have stacks of applications. Isn't that what he said? Mm -hmm. You might know the wording better. But we had um, the VP of manufacturing, um, I'm not sure if his titles changed since he's been there. I know a couple managers have, but at the time he was VP of manufacturing and he's up there talking about how, you know, tons of people would want this job. And this was pre COVID lockdowns and everything. So he's up there telling everyone, well, if, you know, there's plenty of jobs out there, you know, they're, you know, telling us, you know, well, essentially saying, if you don't like it, then just quit. And it really created this drama between those of us who were pro union and management and it just turned into this back and forth about what's in misinformation and what isn't what's being left out and what isn't which I think was part of the downfall because what we should have been focusing our energy on or at least I feel like what I should have been focusing my energy on instead of just countering all of management's nonsense claims about the UFCW and other unaffiliated unions is to focus on where this this union could help people and really diving into what people's concerns were here instead of just trying to play defense with management. That was a whole like aspect of why I think this union drive was ultimately failed in the sense of like we lost the election because of these really aggressive anti-union meetings. And people wanted to sit these meetings out. They were all mandatory. They would stop production in the middle of the day. They were willing to cut into profits to have these meetings. It was just really unnecessary. And then you kind of also have to dive into their response to COVID because shortly... After we lost the election, that's when COVID really started hitting the U.S. and everybody was in a panic and trying to figure out, like, you know, are we going to shut down? Are we not shutting down? You know, at the time, you know, very little was known about the virus and all of that. So everybody got really concerned. And even though we had just lost the union election, everybody was kind of rallying back together out of their concerns for safety as it related to COVID. So what management ended up doing, they ended up giving us these three options. One of the options, it allowed you to just quit your job on good standing, and you can maybe come back at a later date if they need you, but doesn't necessarily guarantee that you would get your job back once you felt as though it was safe to come back to work. Another option was you could commit to staying. And if you have perfect attendance, no tardies, no absences for 90 days, during a pandemic then you would be eligible for a dollar and 50 cent temporary raise for the next 90 days essentially they were like if you have perfect attendance for 90 days we'll give you a raise for 90 days so you don't get paid back for any of the time you were still risking your life to come make plant meat and the third option though which i which is what josh ended up taking but what they had ended up having people do was they gave them this option to hand you they said okay you can quit we'll give you three weeks of pay and you have to sign an NDA that basically absolved them of any violation of the ADA, of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Just They basically covered their asses and were like, oh, you know, you can't sue us for anything. Oh, and it also mentioned in there you know, we're not subject to any violation of the NLRA. It's like, I don't even know if this uh, NDA would be legally binding if somebody decided to bring it to court, because it's like the Civil Rights Act and the ADA and the NLRA are federal law. You can't just, supersede that with an NDA. But yeah, it was just, but this is where I actually believed that that retaliation started. Because I think what they did there by handing out that crappy golden parachute of $1,300 to people who were afraid for themselves, who were afraid for their children, who were afraid for family members that might be high risk, you know, they were essentially like, okay, well, we'll give you some money, but you need to be quiet about it. And that's when I think the real retaliation started. And I feel like that was a part of it because a lot of the people who ended up taking that option were people that were pro-union. And I think that they knew that would happen Given everything that we'd been through during the drive and the particular circumstances of certain people who had those high-risk family members or were high-risk themselves, it was basically a way to shove out a third of the working force.
2: Yeah, I get them 24 hours to decide on. And,
4: and, yeah, that was the kicker is that they gave us 24 hours to make this decision. Less than that, if you you know for some people yeah less than that for some people i know there was somebody there who didn't hear about it until like 10:30 that night because they weren't there that day and it was just this whole convoluted mess but i think josh can talk more on that because he took option three
3: yeah so i took option three so the 40 hours or so worth of like captive meetings started wearing thin on me because they were actively encouraging pro management employees to start shouting down people who were asking questions or were, you know, openly critical of the information that was being presented. Cause it was being, it was like information that was being given forward that while not necessarily a lie was not necessarily the truth either, immensely frustrating. So I ended up having a panic attack at one of these meetings and I had to go, I have a really hard time being crowded in in a dark room with a bunch of people while in the back of my mind, I'm reading about like this, you know, pandemic that's out breaking out in like, you know, other countries. And I'm also being force fed a bunch of, uh, you know, like, like I said, I don't want to say lies cause it's very strong, but I want to say information that has definitely got an ideological bent to it. So I knew what was going to, what was coming, even though they were talking about like, Oh, let's get back together. Oh, let's like move forward. I knew they had a l- List of people and my kid is high risk. If she catches COVID 19, she will not survive. She has severe respiratory issues. So I had to, in the interest of the safety of my family, leave that and my mental health, leave that place. Because they started also trying to find things to nitpick on. Like one of the things they were talking about was like, oh, well, like, you know, you can't be on your phone. Well, I have a high risk kid who is still in school at the, up to this point and i'm trying to like keep tabs on what's going on because we're trying to scramble to have our our coverage so that somebody's at home with the kids all the time so um i would like step off the floor respectfully you know i wasn't like pulling my phone out on the floor but then i got a write-up for doing that even though I'd already spoken to one of, the, like one of the, the, the production managers and was like, hey, this is what's going on. I need to be able to access my phone. I'm just stepping out for like three seconds to like, you know, make sure everything's fine. And I was doing this maybe an hour, every hour and a half or so. But, you know, that's definitely when I was like, oh, yeah, so they're I'm under constant observation now.
4: Another thing, too, is that once all the decisions were were made by these people and like when I say decision, it's like everybody who chose out of those options. Everybody that I've spoken to personally about it there didn't really feel like it was much of a choice. It was like, you know, either I have to do this because X, Y, Z, you know, oh, my, my kid is high risk, I'm high risk, you know, whatever the reason might be. The people who chose whatever they chose didn't really feel like they had any other option. And once all of those decisions were made, what we ended up doing was putting together a petition for immediate hazard pay Essentially, we ended up putting together a petition and got almost all of the staff to sign it. I think it was maybe like four out of the 50 people that were left didn't sign this petition so we put this petition together and the day before we go to turn it in
2: well um, let me back up because um, I, I feel like this is important to mention too um so with the petition specifically the reason that the petition had to be made is because what they were trying to do was so after everybody took after the the three options were given out and the, the remaining people were there they said okay well the remaining people are here obviously are going to be working through a pandemic so if they want hazard pay what they have to do is to qualify quote unquote, qualify for it, they have to work for 90 days of perfect attendance throughout the pandemic, meaning you can't call out, you can't be late, everything has to be an excused absence, or you you disqualify yourself from hazard pay. And so when they announced that, I mean, it, it brought people together almost immediately because nobody agreed with it. And it was one of those issues that for the first time since the union drive, people were coming together even people who voted no people who voted yes it didn't even matter and the, and they were all like well i was late five three minutes today i just disqualified myself from hazard pay and it kind of became like this runny joke where it, nobody was qualifying for it really quickly so that's the reason why this petition for hazard pay even came about because nobody was going to get it and the idea of not getting hazard pay and 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 having to qualify in the middle of a pandemic and have perfect attendance for it for 90 days it, it's just It's so out there. So like Megan said, once this petition got a majority of signatures, we were about to turn it in. And the day before we were about to turn it in, I was pulled off the production floor, like maybe 30 minutes before my shift was over by the head of HR. And uh, he basically asked me, okay, so you know, I've heard that the well." he started it off like this. He was like, so People have been saying you're acting kind of weird lately. Uh, are you okay? Is everything okay? Are you, are you doing okay? And he asked me like three or four times. Are, you, are are you sure you're okay? Are you all right? And I was like, Yeah, I'm fine. Uh, what do you need? And and he was like, Well, uh, I just I just heard that uh you know like uh what's this 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 petition about? And I and I was like, Oh uh, well, I you know and then I just told him it. That there's a majority of people who want hazard pay. <laughs> And we're we're kind of upset about this policy, and it's got a majority of signatures. I told him that. I wanted him to know that. I wanted that to go straight back up the chain to management. And he responded by telling me that I had been identified as, quote, one of four people behind the petition, which suggested, and this kind of ties into the NLRB case, uh, it suggested that they were monitoring us, monitoring protected activities under the nlra and on top of that he asked if the petition was related to the union drive which is if you know anything about the nlra that's like you you can't ask people that and so he asked me these questions and and it ended you know it it was none of it was hostile it was all okay but it was just a very strange interaction and after it was over I, i i walked back onto the production floor and like i guess the people i had been working with could tell that I had just been through something (laughs) because I guess my face was all flushed and and I looked kind of like I'd seen a ghost, but it was scarier than a ghost. It was HR.
3: (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that I find interesting is that when they, I was already gone after they instituted this whole like, hey, if you're not late for 90 days, they just put in a a new clock-in system that was strange because it was supposedly set by the internet, but the times, it had different times on each terminal you'd use to clock in. So it is my sincere uh, belief that they definitely were going to do some funny business with that.
4: It's funny that you mentioned that because I, what I'm kind of trying to segue into here is like the way that they tried to retaliate against me. Cause you know, fast forward, they ended up jumping out in front of the petition and giving us the hazard pay, we actually ended up getting more than we were going to ask for because they jumped out in front of it. They didn't know what was actually on the petition. So they ended up giving everybody a $2.25 increase. I think at the time they said for the 90-day period, but I believe it's still indefinite now.
2: I totally forgot that part. So after after the actual um, interaction I had with HR, the next day they announced hazard pay.
4: Yeah. Yeah. So the next day hazard pay is announced. But when you fast forward like what was it like 2 3 weeks later uh-huh. i get pulled into the office by uh my the shift leader now she's not like upper management but i get pulled into the office and she tells me that i was a minute late on april 17th she tells me i'm a minute late and that i need to sign off on a piece of paper you know stating that this won't happen again and i looked at her and i was like wait a minute like like really are are you serious or no I, she didn't want me to sign anything at this point. She just wanted to bring it to my attention that I was one minute late on the 17th. So I basically questioned her, like, why one minute? Like, you're you're really going to jump down my throat over a minute? Like, I'm here on time every day. And she laughed about it with me, actually. She was like, no, I know. Like, they just want me to say something about it, blah, 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 blah. And so, you know, me and this manager had a good laugh about how, you know, they wanted to talk to me about being a minute late. It was pretty funny. Fast forward another two weeks, I'm pulled into the office again, and I'm told that since I was one minute late on April 17th and two minutes late on April 28th, that my behavior has now become unacceptable and that I need to sign a piece of paper admitting that my behavior is unacceptable and that this won't ever happen again and that I acknowledge this is a problem. And I told her, I'm like, I'm not signing this, like, this is silly you know, who do I appeal this to? I, You know, I'm not going to sign that one minute, two minutes over the span of like two weeks. Like I had never been late a day before in my life there. Um, it, it was just nonsense. And so she's like, well, I don't have the authority to uh, change anything on the paper or whatever. But, you know, I'll, I'll say I'll let Drew know in HR and you can talk to him. Now, this is the same Drew that's been questioning John about this petition and all of that. So I'm like, oh, great. Now I get to talk to this guy. So instead of waiting, <laughs> so instead of waiting um, for him to reach out to me, I went to him and I was like, hey, I don't know if you had a chance to talk to the manager about this, but I really feel like this, me having to sign off on something saying my behavior is unacceptable over a one-minute discrepancy on a time punch, I don't think this is really fair, yada, 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 anything any normal person would say being penalized for two minutes. And he tells me that, oh, okay, well, I'll double-check the time punches, bringing it back into what Josh is saying about these time punches because the system was really funny and it malfunctioned all the time. Half the time you couldn't even clock in. So it's like they're they're really honing in on people over one and two minutes when the clock in system is really wonky and doesn't work half the time anyway. But the HR manager tells me that, you know, he'll look into it and he'll check the time punches. He'll get back to me and blah, blah, blah. So I said, okay, I'm satisfied with that. He didn't make me sign anything, didn't push me to sign anything. So, you know, I go back and finish out my day with no issue. The next day, they fired John like the next day they fired John instead of what I feel like was going to be me. But yeah, they here and you could. Well,
2: about yeah. I mean, that. they yeah. just, they just settled for me instead of you.
4: Yeah. The NLRA is the national labor relations act. And, you know, I, I'm not a history major or anything, but my understanding of the NLRA is that it was enacted after all of the like early 20th century uprisings with the working class and all of the labor movement and all of that. Um, but it basically protects certain activities like organizing a union, talking to your employees about different issues at work. It just basically protects employees from overreach from management while engaging in these activities to organize your workplace.
2: Yeah, like like ask, asking me if uh, the petitions were related to uh, the union drive is a violation of the nlra questioning uh workers about uh, about a petition for something like hazard pay is a violation of the nlra and these are all things that tie into the nlrb lawsuit that me and uh, another former worker filed uh, against no evil foods my firing was shortly after they tried to fire her and um it was on May Day. so the day, it was I think it was the day before May first. Um, I was on a conveyor I was on one of the conveyor belts with somebody else. And uh, the plant manager at the time walked by. and supposedly, I was standing too close to this person, and she said that I needed to social distance and and be be farther away from them. And she kind of made a big deal out of it, which is understandable. And and that was one of the problems that that we had with the area or the facility in particular is that it's so it's already such a small area and when you're working on a conveyor belt and you're already short-staffed as we were at the time, you have to be close to people and there's there's like it's so hard to get away from that uh, and and to actually social distance in 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 a quarter of a warehouse that they actually occupied at the time. So she walks away and then I come in the next day. And I'm stopped at the, door, at the door by the head of HR, and he, in about a, maybe a two-minute conversation, tells me that my performance is unacceptable. I'm not taking social distancing seriously, and they're going to be terminating me effective immediately. And I said, well, like, okay, but, but Drew, like, you, you, knew, you know that I moved here to take this job. You, you know that social distancing is not entirely possible at all all times in this facility and he just said well those are excuses you're just making up excuses um you need to leave the property and and that was it it was it was a very short brief conversation that was maybe two or three minutes long and then that was it things that we had been talking about leading up to
3: when i left like they knew that there was not a good way to social distance on that floor with the way they had things configured and set up and like it talked to me about what they did to you it's so like they, they basically yeah. jujitsued every complaint that you, valid complaint that you'd brought up and used it against you.
2: Yeah, exactly. I, I, and I remember when you were there and, and w- even when I was still there, like as COVID was starting to really ramp up, we were all voicing concerns about social distancing and saying, it's not possible though with social distance in this place, there's going to be an outbreak. We don't feel safe here. And I remember at one of our COVID meetings, the plant manager said, well, if you don't feel safe here, you can always, you just don't have, you don't have to be here. Well, yeah, I kind of do. This is my job. I have to be here.
3: Yeah, and that's the thing is, it's like, you know, especially at that point, you know, businesses were shutting down. Like, you know, everybody was basically expecting like, or the, the quarantine to start happening. Yeah, so, I mean, it, like, really ironic that he was saying, "We'll just go get another job." It really speaks to that sort of mentality that 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 mentality they have, where it's like, you know, I don't owe responsibility to the people that I employ. I have no, their concerns are not mine.
2: Yeah, the workers are replaceable and and dispensable. Yeah, turn cog, turn. So the outcome of the lawsuit uh, was that they settled out of court, um, which meant that they offered a payout um, and they said that they would give us a neutral job reference. One of the other worker who also filed was also involved with the petition, uh, very, very strongly involved with organizing the petition and uh, the union drive. And they were fired for a, a oh, ridiculous geez. dress code violation, like the i i I feel like that out of all the people who were fired for the union union related activities or even just because of the covid stuff, that firing was probably the most offensive of them all because they claim that this worker had. Pants that were too, like, like, a quarter of an inch too short?
4: Yes, and she had worn them multiple times to work, and all of us wore pants that were shorter than the ones that she was wearing at the time. This woman lives five minutes from the facility, or did at the time, and they wouldn't even give her the opportunity to go change this pair of pants that she had worn previously without any issue, and they just decided to suspend and then subsequently fire her. She ended up winning her case as well.
2: Yeah. I remember that. That was just completely ridiculous. At first, they... The idea of possibly getting reinstated um, and I and you know, I, I wasn't totally closed off to it, but apparently no evil was they didn't want us back. They, they, they wouldn't have settled if we came back. So uh, that was part of the agreement that um, we were not allowed to come back, get our jobs back so in exchange for that part of the other, the other part of the settlement, aside from what I already mentioned, is that they have this, um, they have to put up this poster at the facility, and it has to stay up for 60 days, which basically kind of covers the terms of the settlement, including everything that I just said. But it also says that workers have the right to unionize, they have the right to talk about unionizing, they have the right to contact the UFCW or any other union, uh, which is great. I mean, and my, my hope is that somebody will see that, and they'll say, huh, why is this here? There was a settlement and then they just pop it into google google you know no evil foods union and you get you know all the results that you need or no evil foods covid and it, it all comes right up so it's very easy to find if somebody just gets a little bit of curiosity and has access to a computer
3: to go back to the um you know what john and meg's experience in, in like leaving that place it was really when they showed what their agenda really was you know and like i get you know the existence of a business is to make money and that's fine, but like, you can also, at the same time, take care of the people that work for you. And if you went through the extreme measures that they had to like fight this union, they hired a lawsuit that was also representing the uh, HCA hospitals, and like the, the local hospital here had, uh, the nurses had organized successfully, and um, this law firm costs like $1,000 an hour. Like this, they did. They they spent a lot of money fighting this, and in the end, like you know, they have now like a uh, the morale there is still low to this day from what I understand, and you know, people are just don't want like most of the, like they lost like what was it like ten people?
2: Yeah, they lost uh, like, well, like a, a third of their staff. Yeah, it was a third like, more than or about the, a third of the staff since the COVID outbreak, either due to people quitting or getting fired or you know, whatever. Over the summer, some of the audio, so there was a bunch of audio that was uh, rec- secretly recorded in these anti union meetings that they forced everybody to sit through. And some of that audio was actually leaked through various platforms. And um, No Evil has uh, made a very desperate attempt to copyright claim and censor this audio. And I feel like that needs to be mentioned just for the fact that if people really want to get an experience, uh, an idea of, what these meetings were like number one or just what they'll be if anybody is ever going to or in the process of forming a union if you want to know what it's going to be like and what like the talking points are going to be to just inoculate yourself and your coworkers, sit through this find this audio and i'll i I'll, I'll tell you where to get it but you you can you can sit through this audio and and listen to it and it's it's like a 45 minute compilation of like like five, four or five meetings with just the speakers and and that's the that's what's funny about the audio that was leaked it's it's just a it's edited so it's just the actual speakers talking and you can just get an idea of the distortions that they were throwing at us on a daily basis at these meetings just just the level of bs that was involved with all of it to find that audio like i said you can go to it's it's com. Uh, so that's moevilfoods.com, um, and it's got a compilation of all the articles that have been written, and the audio was up there too. Yeah, that's probably the the easiest and the best place to start.
3: At my end, I would I would recommend that you know there there are a lot of really great books on the subject of organization. Look up things like uh, them and us organizing. I think it's uh somewhere on like a DSA website. It's a, a a meeting they had with like labor historians and labor labor organizers throughout the country, which is very inform informational. Um it was really um good. Also a really good book. Uh, let me pull it up real quick by Jane McAvely. Um it's called uh, No Shortcuts, How to Organize for Power in the Workplace. Um it really does talk about like you know when you are starting to organize how to identify the natural leaders on your shop floor people that like you know already have like you know the respect of the, of the, your coworkers um and how to like you know talk to them and how to give them the tools necessary for making your unionization drive as as smooth as possible um you know it's very very important that you know you, you cuz you can't just be going around and like you know being it has to come from the workers themselves. You can't just have one person running point on things.
2: Yeah, and just some general advice too, to anybody that is in the middle of organizing or uh, might organize one day, and it's very common sense, but it's something that I feel like helped me specifically, especially with the NLRB case, is to just document and record as much as you can. Um, document your interactions with management, document any any successes or you know achievements that you have on the job, document any um, just, just everything. Just record everything. That's that's as that brief as I can be about it. Yeah, uh, it, it can be very, very helpful, especially if there's a union drive coming up.
3: Yeah, and even contemporaneous notes, which is basically, you know, say you didn't have time to like set up like the recording on your 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 phone, or you don't live in a state that allows for one-party uh, uh, recording. You can also just make a note in your phone with the date, time, who you were talking to, where you were talking, and what you guys were talking about. That does that can actually be admissible in these sort of hearings.
4: I just think it's really important to mention that um, these people at No Evil Foods, the owners Mike and Sadra, are still t- like they're publicly slandering the organizers, and they're. And I just feel like it's worth mentioning that there's an article in uh, Veg News, which is a pretty major vegan publication. It's an online publication, I believe, for the most part. And what they said in this Veg News article is that uh, organizers, not not naming anybody specifically, but they've stated that, quote, organizers have taken in big union money, are lying, um, have extorted them and threatened their family. Now, I don't know who specifically they, they think did any of those things, but I just always feel the need to publicly mention that I'm still open to uh, having a public dialogue with them about that because none of us ever did those things. And, you know, it's just a matter of like, you know, John and Courtney won their cases and, you know, it, it had some sort of a positive outcome, but these people are still out there slandering us. And I just
2: think it's worth noting yeah and trying to censor all the audio of their meeting yeah and trying to censor everything if they have nothing to hide and they stand by everything that they said at those meetings they should be trying to censor them they should be standing by it if they actually believe everything they said i remember
3: i had a, a email exchange with the author of that article saying like hey you misrepresented a lot of the facts here and they actually did get back to me and they did actually change a couple of the the, a couple of things not a whole lot but just enough for that like I was like well okay you did the bare minimum as a journalist. You can find the audio
2: directly on uh, moevilfoods.com that's probably the best place to find it.
0: That conversation was from the winter and a few weeks ago the same folks spoke with us with updates about what's been happening at the company since then.
2: Earlier this year I started getting messages from people at no evil foods who were um, getting fired or getting laid off and these weren't people who were necessarily even union supporters some of them were but some of them definitely weren't there there was clearly some kind of a a reason that all of these people were losing their jobs And and the speculation had been that the company was going out of business but knowing how much venture capital is behind no evil foods and knowing sort of about their marketing and kind of seeing how their company operates. I didn't really ever think that the company was going out of business, but something was going on. And it was kind of a matter of figuring out what was happening and why everybody was kind of losing their jobs. And then on the 11th of June, it kind of became a little bit obvious as to what exactly was happening. And that was the company on the 11th called a meeting and they laid off the entire production staff and the reason that it's kind of interesting to me that everybody was slowly being let go over the last several months is because there's a law that says that if you have more than 50 employees, you have to give them 60 days of notice if you're going to lay them off. So they had trimmed that number down to under 50 over the last several months, whether it was coincidental or you know by design, I don't know, but it does seem kind of strange to me. That it kind of worked out like that. And so on the 11th, uh, they laid everybody off, uh, the entire production staff, just the production staff, a lot of the higher ups got to keep their jobs, but they laid everybody off um, without severance, without warning, and handed them a flyer for a job fair.
1: It's especially gross too the way in which they did it, because like John said, these employees had no warning like they, you know, they thought they were coming in for just a regular all team meeting where they announce like birthdays and kind of rally everybody around to boost morale and stuff like that. But instead, they decide to tell them, you know, oh, you're out of a job. Not only are they out of a job, they cut their health care that same day And we're Uh informed that the deductions that normally come out of their check for that health care for their final paycheck, were still going to be deducted, even though their health care ended that day. So it just kind of adds insult to injury to these people that not only have they lost their income, they lost their health care that same day. And then they just handed them like a job fair flyer and said, good luck, guys. Sorry. Like, it's just it's kind of mind blowing the way that these people just kind of treat their employees like disposable diapers. I I mean, of course, that's just my opinion, but it's pretty astounding. And the amount of people who uh, work there and were laid off that have reached out to us, you know, telling us, well, we don't know what we're going to do now. You know, they're scrambling to find jobs. Um, I was also told by another employee that was laid off that, They actually got locked out of the um, employee portal there because some of them were trying to access, you know, employee reviews um, so they could show potential employers and they don't even have access to those now. And their phone calls are being unanswered. And it's just it's all really horrifying and really disturbing.
2: The reason that this ended up happening is because they're actually going to be outsourcing the manufacturing to a third party, like a co-manufacturer somewhere out in Illinois. So it's not like the company is shutting down they are only relocating, and they're doing it to cut costs. The way that they phrased it when they actually laid them off, and there's actually leaked audio from this meeting that you should totally listen to if you haven't heard it yet. The way that the, the, the CEO phrased it was that it's really a question of whether or not there's going to be a No Evil Foods or not. And he made it seem like we have to do this. We don't have a choice. But how do you have a No Evil Foods without, to me, it's it's like, how do you have No Evil Foods without the people who made No Evil Foods? How do you continue on and, and justify your brand name and your company name, sacrificing the people who made all of that possible. These are the people who just worked through a pandemic. These are the people, a lot of them, who stood by the company throughout the union drive. And this is how they were repaid. They were laid off at the end of it. Thanks for working through the pandemic. Thanks for standing by, by us throughout the union drive. But uh, yeah, here's a flyer for a job fair.
1: There are a lot of jobs hiring in the area right now, but what I'm being told by employees is that a problem they're running into is that they built their entire lives around these schedules that No Evil had. Some of them had overnight shifts, which is kind of a hard thing to find with the same rate of pay that they were receiving at No Evil Foods. Um, But I I guess there's some obstacles there because um, people are having trouble finding a schedule that meets their accommodations. And so these people are having to turn their lives around and, you know, just completely restructure the entire schedule that they've had for the last two years. What's especially horrifying, I don't, I don't think you didn't mention this yet, John, a memo, an internal memo from No Evil Foods actually got leaked yesterday. One of the owners, Sabra Shadell, sent out a memo to the remaining employees. there, basically encouraging them to, uh, stay positive about, uh, the future of no evil foods and gave them a list of optimistic. Yeah. Remain optimistic. That was the wording, but, um, there, there were like six or seven different talking points, like word for word of how they want their remaining employees to discuss what happened. And it's just all really crazy. It's all really mind blowing. And meanwhile, you know these people are relying on other employers in the area to to meet their needs after they put their heart and soul into the building up this company, and on top of that, are relying on other people to uh, donate to the fundraiser that we have going. It's also especially disturbing because during the union drive, you know, one of our main points and why we wanted to secure this union is because it was a rapidly growing company. We all knew. That there was going to be upscaling and that the business model was constantly going to be changing while they worked out the manufacturing process. And so, you know, we brought this to the attention of management and explained to them, you know, we're just looking for some job security, you know, who knows what's going to happen within the next year, two years, whatever, And the way that they turned it around is, uh, you you know, they mentioned to people, oh, you know, there's rumors flying around about how we're planning on selling the business and doing this and that. And they essentially told everybody that they had no plans to lay anybody off or to uh, move to a different facility or fire them or sell the company when, you know, less than a year later, they're doing all of these things.
2: Yeah, well, one thing I wanted to add on that point, too, is that a lot of these people who, like I said, they stood by them throughout the union drive, they stood by them throughout the pandemic. Talking to these people now, they genuinely believe that No Evil Foods cared about them. And I think that's one of the most heartbreaking things for me is there's there's no, like, well, you know, there's no... It, it doesn't feel good being right at all. I mean, these are these are all people who... Who had the they they really, in their hearts believed the owners cared about them, cared about their families. They felt like they were part of a family at No evil Foods. They really genuinely believed them, and they thought that they were going to be at this company for a really long time, and this is what they got. They got stabbed in the back every single one of them. every job to some to some extent says, well, you know you're we're all a family here, and we care about you." but they went above and beyond to really push that image. And these people are not only broke, not only without health care, but they're, they're in a way, I think a lot of them are kind of heartbroken over this.
1: I said this on the last podcast. I went on talking about this, but it's like, you know, I challenge them to match the donations because they're they're still making money. They're going to be fine. I just don't understand how you can sleep at night and treat people who
0: you call your family like that as a follow up. We asked No Evil Foods to provide comment. The following is a selection from their response, which includes context on their decision to outsource production. Quote We know this announcement hit everyone on our team very hard. It was brutal for us too, and it's absolutely not something we ever wanted to do or expected to do. It was a result of a complicated set of issues compounded by an impossible pandemic year, and it's easy to try and make this a simplistic narrative or apply reductive labels, but it's simply not the reality of the situation. No Evil Foods is ending production in its Weaverville, North Carolina facility and shifting to a co-manufacturing partnership. This decision was incredibly painful, There's tremendous sadness in letting go our vision to create living wage, fair chance jobs, build community, and effect positive change through our own in-house manufacturing facility. We worked very hard to create a rewarding, supportive work environment based on inclusivity and know our team was heartbroken when they received the news. We are heartbroken too. We want to be clear this was a decision of last resort. We had to shift our business model. It was necessary for No Evil Foods to survive and for the company to have any kind of future. And everyone lost something in this. It's been misrepresented that layoffs were just in our production team. That is not true. Team members from all departments were impacted, sales, marketing, R&D, HR, operations, and included managers and senior executives. My co-founder, Sadra, and I have taken a 50% pay cut and have put up our life savings to provide critical financial support through this difficult transition. Why did this happen? Our capital situation has been challenged by a series of unfortunate and compounding complications greatly exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic, which eroded our cash reserves as we struggled to keep operations going during the pandemic. We were able to raise some capital over the last six months, But as a sole manufacturer bearing all expenses, including enhanced payroll and COVID-19 cleaning and safety precautions, those funds were burned through quickly to meet operating expenses and, more importantly, to maintain payroll for our production team for as long as possible as we fought to make our business model work. We had an initial round of layoffs in May, but when an anticipated and significant infusion of essential capital fell through suddenly in early June, we were forced to act quickly in a matter of days as we were out of cash. Through the pandemic, we tried our hardest to keep the business operating, despite significant investment in COVID protocols, which were successful as we had zero COVID-19 cases spread among our production team. We too felt the challenges of operating during the crisis. We gave all of our employees a permanent $2.25 an hour raise during the pandemic even while we were struggling financially and facing serious logistical issues, because it was the right thing to do. This put the average wage on our production team at $17 an hour, which is very competitive for our area. We initially considered tying the raise to attendance, but quickly realized that policy was not reflective of our values. And after employee feedback, we adapted the policy and made the pay increase for everyone, regardless of their attendance and performance. We are people and we make mistakes. And when we realize we've made a mistake, we move to correct it. While we know that it is not nearly enough, we've done what we can with our limited funds to support our team through their transition. We're working closely with local businesses and our network of community partners to match impacted team members with new positions that fit their experience. We have provided one-to-one coaching and resume development, and we started receiving reports of team members obtaining new positions within hours of the layoff. In this new phase, we've selected a partner who works with other brands in the plant-based space. And who shares our values about creating good jobs, supporting the local community, and providing opportunities to workers with significant barriers to employment. This facility will have a dedicated and isolated NEF space, allowing us to ensure the integrity of our products. We believe this move allows us to work towards building a sustainable future for no evil foods without compromising on the sustainability, health, and social justice commitments that underscore our mission." Unquote. You can find out more details on the situation as it unfolds, including the audio referenced in the interview at MoEvilFoods.com. That's M-O-E-V-I-L foods.com. This has been Partisan Gardens.
2: On this program, we are going to look at the world through the lens of food.
1: We will speak directly to those with
2: their hands in the dirt.
0: But also to those in all sectors of the food world.
2: To the servers and those being served. To the history of food in this country and beyond. We will focus on understanding the systemic problems in our food industry, including food scarcity and racism. We want to talk to you, too. Please write us at PartisanGardens at WFHB.org, and we will be in touch.